Thank you, Chris, for your prayers. Thank you, Jeremy, for leading us in communion and those thoughts. It's always wonderful to see the Lord at work orchestrating uh, and weaving ideas together um, throughout the service. Uh, you preached the very short sermon. I get to preach the very uh, other sermon, and we'll all walk through this together here this morning. My name is Eric Smith. Uh, Dan Brown and I uh, get to co-pastor uh, the church that uh, that we used to say campus, now we, I guess we say planted, uh, that we planted together and uh, that, that uh, operates on the east side of town. Um, I'm excited to be here. I always love seeing uh, both the familiar faces and the new faces. And I look forward to walking through this uh, passage in Philippians with you. So if you would, open your Bibles to Philippians. Go to chapter 2. We're just going to start at the end of 1. We're going to start at 127. Most of our content will then come at the beginning of chapter 2. As you guys do that, I've got a few slides here that will guide us. There's our passage if you need to see that again. Well, let me read through this passage, and then I'm going to pray for us again, talk to the Lord, and ask Him to do His work here, and then we'll get in to see what the Lord has in store for us um, in this, uh, in this uh, wonderful and challenging and very encouraging letter here from Paul. I'll start in Philippians 1, verse 27. This is from the English Standard Version. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only, not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Father, we do pray and ask that you, by your loving and present Holy Spirit, that you would work in us, open the eyes of our hearts, that we would know you more 
that our minds and our hearts would just crave and desire and long for with our wills the things that you love. Give us the strength to do what you call us to do in this passage and help us to understand what you inspired, Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul. Do this all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, today's uh, passage moves through. Uh, Dan told me he, 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 when he was here last week, he complained, that's what I call it, uh, that he had the long passage, and I, that's fine, that's okay. We looked at the schedule together before he came over here. Um, I have the good passage, okay? Uh, I do think this section of Philippians chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves or have this attitude in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That section right there, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, what a glorious passage. And let me just say this, because if you get nothing else from this, I would encourage you, if you haven't already in your life, memorize that passage. As you know, when you put things in your mind, when you, when you remember them and you memorize them, it's not because we want to win some contest or we want to tell others we have it memorized. It's so that as you're going about your daily work, as you're washing dishes, as you're driving down the road, as you're going from one meeting to the next, as you have a down moment, as you're taking a lunch break, whatever it might be, we train ourselves to bring these ideas back to mind. And then we, what those who have, gone before us talk about we meditate we we think about those and we ask the spirit to do his work so philippians 2 5 through 11 i think are the the high point of this passage but paul connects a lot to it and that's what we're going to look at today as he leads up to it he's going to connect ideas that are going to culminate in this idea of jesus's humility and then his exaltation and then next week, when Dan's back here and has an even shorter passage than I do this week, we'll see kind of Paul's implications of, in light of what Jesus has done, live this way. But let's jump in. Our passage starts back at Philippians 1, verse 27. And interestingly, uh, we talk about Bible translations. Mike and I were talking about them this morning. There's a variety of good ones. I like the ESV. It's the one I primarily use. But there's others in the kind of the, the trying to stay really close to what the Greek and Hebrew said. The NAS is another very good translation along those lines. But interestingly, the one that, that kind of got verse 127 maybe most accurate in some sense is the New Living Translation, which, is, which kind of flows. It kind of incorporates the literal and, and then expounds on that with some ideas. It's not an awful, I'm not saying it's an awful translation. I'm just saying it's a little more idea-oriented rather than strictly following the words. And the New Living Translation says this in verse 127. And above all, you must live as, and it's that word citizens, I want you to note. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. Conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. It's that section right there that they take a literal understanding of the Greek word that sits behind it. Everybody else interprets it and says that we think Paul is using more of a general idea. Let your manner, the ESV says, of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
I like the contrast, and sometimes it's helpful to just put different translations up next to each other because they draw things out of the text that we don't all access in terms of the Greek and Hebrew that sit behind the New and the Old Testaments. But it gives us something to think about here at the beginning of this passage. That Paul's telling them, look at your manner of life. Who sets the standard for your manner of life? And he's going to say to them, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the thing I like about putting the New Living Translation up here is is it does bring in this idea from this word that sits back behind this. And it says, you followers of Jesus, you are citizens of heaven. Now, in the Roman Empire, citizenship was a very, very, very significant thing. If If you've read the New Testament and you see the life of Paul, you know, Jordan, hold on. I don't know why you're so tall. I just got to move. Can I move this? Okay, thanks. I'm looking at half the people here, and I'm like, I, they can only see me from here. I'll, you fix that. Yeah. They, hey, how are you guys doing over there? <clears throat> Someday I'll hit a growth spurt. I'm convinced the new heavens and the new earth. Watch out. The Philippians, he wanted to remind them, are citizens of heaven. And as important as it was, and again, I was just going to mention, we, we see Paul sometimes using his citizenship as a, Roman, as a Roman citizen. Hey, you can't punish me in this way. Or hey, you punished me in this way. You didn't even give me a trial. I'm a Roman citizen. He brings it out. It gives a certain standard by which he, he can live. It gives him certain rights by which he can live. Some of you have been part of organizations or clubs or teams. Some of you military, some of you Air Force, one of you, I think, Navy. That sets certain standards. It tells you because you're one of us, you need to live this way or you ought to live this way. We do this because we value this. This is what we're about. Paul is reminding them here as we jump into this passage, and again, this comes from him showing what a gospel-focused life he's living while in prison or under house arrest or whatever it is. He is not a free man. He, he, is, he is maybe bound to a Roman guard. He's maybe in a cell. Life is not about him going out and about. And he says, you know what? This is great. Not my circumstances, But I see life through the advancement of the gospel. And the gospel is going out. And he shows in that chapter 1 that the gospel is going out even among the guards as he continues to make the most of his life. And now he's telling them, remember who you report to. Remember what citizenship is most important in your life. And then here's the main idea that's going to come throughout our passage. Because you're a citizen of heaven. It's not the rights you have, it's the people you serve. It's not the rights you hold on to. That can be right as Americans. It was right for Paul as a Roman. There's different aspects of this. But our citizenship, our allegiance is primarily to the king above all kings, the one whose name is above every name in heaven and earth and below the earth, Jesus Christ. And as Jeremy already told us in the communion time, it's not rights we hold on to. It's what we give. And it's the people we serve with humility. And so we see that as we walk through this passage. Let me put a few more things up here. 
as he unpacks this. Right after this, uh-oh, Lucy, it might be doing what you warned me it. Um, tell you what, is it showing up? Let me, we'll try one more time. If it stalls, Lucy, we'll just scrap it. We'll, we'll, I think this will help, but we'll, we'll just focus on, on what we've got here. Where Paul goes right after he talks about their citizenship, 27, only let this manner of life, only let your citizenship of heaven, your membership in the kingdom of God because of the grace of God, let your life be worthy of the gospel. Now he unpacks it and he says for the Philippians, here's, here's what I want you to think of what it looks like. This doesn't encapsulate everything, but it's, it's what he wants them to get. It's not responding anymore. Let's, let's ditch that. It, I have too many things, too many little things in there that would just bog us down uh, if I asked you to do it. Great, no problem. We will continue with this. He unpacks it this way. Listen to these key words he uses. After he says, so that whether I, I, I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are doing these things, that you are standing firm in one spirit, that you are standing firm, that you're, you're, you're not movable. Why? Because you're citizens of heaven, because you put Jesus Christ first and his desires first in your life and that you're standing firm, and that you're standing together. And he says that with the next phrase, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side. If you've been watching any of the football games, the bowl games, you know, this is kind of a big part of football. You get the bunch of gigantic men up there uh, on the front line, and they go side by side against another group of men that tries to kind of break them up and go through them, and they're each trying to move each other. But this idea... That we're not against each other, that we're with each other. What does it take for us to be with each other, locking arms, moving side by side for the faith of the gospel? He, he never moves far from the gospel, the good news, what Jesus has done, what we are so undeserving of, what Jesus has done for people like us. And then he adds to that, not only are you standing firm and striving, but not frightened in anything by your opponents. And then he goes on, and he kind of tells us why they might be frightened. For this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. He's going to talk about how they are now experiencing things that he has experienced. They're now experiencing things that, that may be persecution, may, may be leading to some arrest or imprisonment, but he just mentions it, engaged, verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that, you, you, that I still have. They too have now entered into a conflict that maybe was unknown to them prior to this. But if they'll stand firm, rooted in the gospel, rooted in the work that Jesus has, if they stand together, side by side, striving for the faith and they show that they're not afraid of the things that are coming at them. This is like a billboard. Those things, that lifestyle based on belief, lived out through the will, lived out through for us, each one of us, is like a sign on the side of the road. 
For them, it was people who wanted them to be afraid. It was probably, maybe, maybe uh, we'll see. He goes and talks about Jews uh, later in this. It might be that they're being oppressed and, and, and persecuted, in a sense, by, by some Jews who have come in and, and uh, who kind of continually and always follow Paul around and maybe part of the reason that he's in prison now. Unity in the face of opposition. Unity in the midst of hard times. Unity and love because of the gospel when there could be other things is a sign to others of the work of Jesus Christ. That's what makes the church different. That's what makes us different. Well, he starts there and at the end of one as he's, as he's moving from here's what life has been like for me and now here's how I want you to live and then he continues that. At the beginning of chapter 2, he says this, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now just stop there before we go on to verse 2. Notice what he's saying here. He's bringing them back to their relationship with the triune God. So if there's any encouragement in Christ... Have you been encouraged that Jesus Christ has welcomed you into his life? That he has given his life to you? We sometimes say we invite Jesus into our hearts, and I'm not totally opposed to that, but I think the more important thing is that Jesus invited us into his. What an amazing God we have. And right here in a couple verses, Paul just brings this up again to them. He knows them. He started this church. He got to be the evangelist, the missionary, the one beginning this. And at some point, leaving them. And yet the care is there. He remembers. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, I think that's love coming from God. Because Christ comes before that line and then right after it, any participation in the Spirit. Have they seen the Holy Spirit at work? Have they seen hard hearts turn soft? Have they seen humility when that could go otherwise? Have they seen love and forgiveness and patience when everything looked like it could have gone the other way? For them, when they're facing maybe this, this persecution he's referring to, this opposition that Paul experienced and now they're experiencing, he's reminding them there's something a whole lot bigger than what you're experiencing. It's the triune God and it is the life now and forever that he invites us into. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort and love, any participation in the Spirit, and then I think he makes a nod at, do they see any affection and sympathy among themselves? All of this is the work of God that shows up in the church. Then he moves and he says, here's what I would love to see. As an apostle, as your brother in Christ, he says in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. A little bit difficult to miss Paul's point here. Same, same, full accord, one, same mind, same love, being in full accord, have one mind. He's now unpacking again. Your citizens of God's kingdom first and foremost because of his grace. 
You've experienced the life of God. You, you've been saved from your sins and from the wrath of God. You've been brought into his life. You've been promised life with him here and in the life to come. And so be one. Complete my joy, he says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being a full of cord, having one mind, do nothing from rivalry. While he says, look for this oneness, now he's going to point out some things that are going to divide. They divide you and me. They divide people all over the place, and they were, it was uh, maybe at some risk of dividing the Philippian church as well. They're facing some opposition, and the tendency can be to go apart and go apart rather than to draw together. Do nothing from rivalry, competition, thinking one's better than the other, or conceit or pride, we could say. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I, read a, I was looking for a good quote on humility. I will say I did not find one that I loved, except for this one. This one's a little snarky. So don't get your hopes up super high. Somebody, I forget who, who it was who even said this, and it doesn't really matter. They said, pastors love to preach on humility. And people, congregations love to hear about humility, but neither love to practice it. I don't know if that's true or not, but at least it recognizes the challenge, right? Isn't it kind of easy to sit here right now and read the word, hear the word, humility? Oh, yeah, yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm okay at that. I'm probably not good, but I'm not going to look real close. I'll just be humble enough to say I'm probably, probably something to work on. Paul does not want to leave the Philippian church there. He's not going to just say, this is hard. He's saying, work on this. Work on this. As I was reflecting on the sermon this morning, my thought and my prayer to God was, God, why do you send someone like me to preach on humility? And then it kind of extrapolated out, not just knowing human nature, why do you use us to talk about humility? And don't take this like theologically too far, but like send an angel or someone who has never sinned to talk about humility. But he thinks we're capable not just to talk about it, but to live it because it's he, it's his spirit who's in us. It's he who can actually do this work it's us looking to him and recognizing more and more by his grace, him showing us and us taking time to sit and look and listen to him. Where do we need to work on? Humility. It's us being willing to talk to a few close friends and say, what have you seen? What can I do? How do I work on this? I know this is a tough season here, and it has been, and we've been a part of that with, with you, and I'm not preaching this because I'm trying to get some message, so I'm preaching it because it's the passage. It'd be nice if it was a different passage.
there's a need for us to focus on humility. Here he's showing us what it looks like. And these would be words for you to go another time, not, not maybe right now. If the Spirit is working right now, then wonderful. Let him work. Let him show you areas to work on. But these are the sort of passages we come back to and we, we use these words. And maybe you do look up definitions of rivalry and conceit, you know, competition and pride. Uh, and, and, and just add a little bit of content to this and just sit and reflect on these things and see with the Spirit there working in you, where do I need to work on these? Because one of the things about humility is this idea that we actually count other people more significant than ourselves. I remember when I was, um, before I was a pastor, and I was working at this, with this organization called Summit Ministries, and one of the other gentlemen uh, was talking about being married, and he just said, man, it's, marriage, marriage can sometimes help with humility. I mean, in yourself, if it goes, well, maybe in your spouse, if, if I'm not doing a great job, but there's a sanctifying process. There's a difficulty in that. There's a difficulty in every different phase and sphere of life where God has us. But I remember this friend saying, man, I, I, before kids came along, I, I, I just really operated as a married bachelor. He kind of liked that play on words. Life continued to be all about him, although he was married, was what he was trying to say. Have you felt like that at times? Life is all about Jesus, except when it's all about me. My marriage is all about us, except when it's all about me. And I've, I've reflected on that some because I, I recognize that he, he really felt the Lord beginning to work as more and more kids came along in his, in his, uh, in his marriage. And, and, it just, and, it, and, it, and it pushed him, and it was part of the Lord's work in his life to challenge him. Think about others. Think about others. Think about others. Think about others. And Paul goes so far as to tell the Philippian church, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Don't compare yourself. Don't, don't get into a competition mode. Don't think yourself better than somebody else. But with humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. And then he keeps going as though we might need to hear just even a little bit more than that. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others, And I just ask, Lord, show us where we can grow and get better at that. At this point now, in the passage we're looking at, he has put this idea of citizenship in front of them, and then he's kind of shown them what that looks like for them to live it out. Stand firm, strive side by side. Don't be frightened. Don't be frightened. But show your unity and your love and your grace patience, forgiveness with each other. And then he says, if you've experienced the saving work of Jesus Christ, you've experienced the life of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you participate in the work of the Holy Spirit, then be of one mind, be together. Do nothing from rivalry, conceit, pulling us apart, but humility. Think about others as though they are more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then ultimately, he then brings Jesus, and this is the passage where I kind of pointed us at the beginning, say, memorize this passage. 
Interestingly, as we read through this, I want you to just take it this way, because oftentimes when Paul brings in Jesus as an example, he's bringing him in. I mean, what we need, first and foremost, is Jesus taking the wrath of God on the cross so that we don't have to experience it. We deserve it, but we're saved. He has atoned for our sins. He has paid our debt. He has declared us righteous, that saving work that Jesus did on the cross. He's not going there, first and foremost, in this passage. He's actually going to bring now Jesus out and use him as an example of humility, not using him as like using him in a bad way, but using Jesus because he is the example of humility. He's the example of thinking of others as more significant than yourselves. That's a little mind-boggling, isn't it? How could God think that we are more significant than himself? It doesn't say that Jesus thought. But his actions show that he's willing to humble himself for our sake. So listen to this. I'll read this again, this passage that shows Jesus' humiliation and then Jesus' exaltation. We'll start in verse 5 where Paul finishes with this command. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me stop there. At that point, then it moves into the exaltation. But you follow what Jesus did. It's like he went down, 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 down. If you just picture the direction that Jesus is going, that's what it looks like. He left heaven. I think heaven is up. Jesus ascended back into heaven. When people pray, oftentimes in the New Testament, they're praying up to to heaven. Jesus will return from where he went. That's, so that's mine. We can. God is present everywhere, but there's a very real sense where heaven is a place that Jesus left. Jesus left. Now, now sometimes we will get hung up with this idea of, of what is it? What does it mean? He, 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 he didn't he didn't, he didn't hold on to, he, he was in the form of God, but didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. I want you to, to think this way. This is the direction I would steer you in this. It's not so much power that Jesus gave up. It's place and position. It's presence with his Father in a place where there is no sin, a very real place where people talk to each other, where angels are known, where Isaiah sees these beings, they're speaking a language that he understands. They're talking to God. We know from the revelation that John goes, he knows you can communicate with angels. He can hear Jesus Christ speaking. He sees the real things. Heaven is a real place and Jesus left it. He had all, but he had power there. He, he, son of God, stepped out of that place down into ours. The other day, I encourage you to do this too. If you haven't done this recently, I went to um, Palmer Park. 
wonderful big park right in the middle of our town. And just, I like to get up on these spots uh, where I can, you can see, you can see further east, and you can see west, you can see north and south, and it's kind of this, this nice park that rises up a little bit in the middle of our city, and, and you can see in all different directions. And because you're kind of up and, and the rest of the city kind of drops around and gets, you know, hilly out in the distance around you, you're kind of up. You also have the sky that just, you know, goes horizon to horizon, every, every direction. Even Pikes Peak sits off enough. It just seems like there's sky. And in that moment, right there, I just realized I am tiny. Some of you are like, oh, you just learned that? I am tiny. I am, I am this speck out in this, out on this plateau on this hill, which to me is big, this park, big, sky, huge. Jesus left heaven and took on my form. Took on human form, took on, put the fullness of God into a man. Tiny speck on this one planet in the midst of all of God's creation that the Father, Son, and Spirit worked together in. The Son of God was willing to leave heaven and come down and take on our form and become very small like you and me. Maybe small in size, but not small in significance. Consider others more significant than yourselves. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would trust in him, believe in him, put their faith in him, would have eternal life, would not face punishment. Jesus did not think that the place and the position that he had was something he needed to hold on to not to hold on and stay in heaven, not to hold on and bring it down onto earth and, and demand and command people. But he let that go. As one person kind of mused, and I, I kind of joined them in thinking about this, could it be that the love of God for you and for me and for all those who have come to faith and will come to faith showed up in Jesus Christ in such a way that he was saying, Father, send me. Is it time? Can I go? Is it the fullness of time? Can I go? When is it time? Jesus came. He didn't think holding on to things of power and, and position were, were something that he needed to hold on to, but he emptied himself. Again, again, we, we see glimpses, and you just have to let the gospel speak for themselves. We see where Jesus still knows things that human beings don't normally know. He knows what people are thinking. And there are times, he says, I don't know what my father's doing in the future or with that. That time is up to him. He experienced fatigue, tiredness, hunger, all these limitations that we have here that I do not think are in heaven. He experienced these in, in the body that he took on very real. He was fully man. There was not a, a, he was just sort of partial man, just looked like he was fully, fully, fully a human being. And he was fully God. 
there are elements of that that I'm not fit to unpack and explain. And we will just let the scriptures guide us to the extent that they explain it. And so Paul, inspired by the Spirit, tells us this in short order, this story of Jesus' humility. Who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Now I want you to notice too, who did the work? Jesus. Paul's really clear as he writes this. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let it go. But made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in likeness, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's probably 10 sermons that I would benefit from just on this passage alone. Maybe a few more that you would benefit from. And we're going to let the Holy Spirit do that work because I encourage you again, keep this passage in front of you. Keep it in your, put it in your mind. Think about it. Reflect on it. Let the Spirit guide you and show you and teach you through it and, and it, more and more of who Jesus is. What I love about that part we just looked at, Jesus let go. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus was obedient. He did these things. Nobody did it to him. The Father didn't make him do this. He did it. And he's the one who lives in you. Do you think there's anything Jesus, Jesus asks that you cannot do? I don't. Because he's the one who lives in you. It's his spirit, the Holy Spirit, his spirit. The scriptures say they go back and forth on this. It's God who is at work in you. God is working in you. And that's kind of next week's sermon. I won't jump too far ahead. But there is nothing that you're, that's asked of you or me that we can't do. The passage finishes with this. Jesus doesn't just come down. I, I grew up in a liberal Protestant church. And the preaching that I heard wasn't Jesus as my Savior. It's Jesus as my example. Which is partly why I, I, I want to move. I, well, I like when Jesus is brought out in the scriptures and shown as my Savior. Here he is, an example of humility and obedience to the Father, which is what Paul's calling the Philippians to. But Jesus didn't just come be humble, and then we're supposed to be like him. He did come. He did let go. He did obey. He did become one of us. And then all the way to the cross... And then Paul skips the resurrection. And in some ways he skips the ascension, though that could be part of it. He goes right to the exaltation. That Jesus now goes up again. Ascension, he literally went up. But even more than that, in position. Where he was, a humble servant. 
obeying his father in all things, not looking for his own way, like a servant, what, what do you have for me, master? What is your will? Then that becomes mine. Jesus, Father, I do what, what, I, do what I hear you doing, what I, what I see you doing, what, I, what you tell me to do. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Jesus didn't lift himself up. His father did. God has highly exalted him and then bestows on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Let me just stop there. Some people have wondered, man, what is, what is that name? What is that magic name that Jesus was given? There's a few options. There's a few right here in the verse, and I would just encourage you, just stay close to what, where this verse goes. The name, the secret magical name is probably Jesus. I know, shocking. What does Jesus mean? It's, a, it's, it's our English version of a Greek version of a Hebrew version, which was Joshua, which means God saves or God's salvation. That's a pretty good name. And very accurate. It fits what Jesus did, it fits his character. It could be name and title, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We also see that a little bit uh, lower down when every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, it could be Lord. The significant thing is not that there's some name other than Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the one that we go to. He is the Savior. He is the promised one. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. And he's the king above all kings. There is no one like him. He has unparalleled authority in the universe. So the Father lifts him up and bestows on him the name that is above every name. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, this is how people will respond. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's talking about a day that will come. A day that will come when Jesus comes back and everyone sees Jesus for who he is. Some already do. Those who have gone before us and are in heaven. They see Jesus Christ the Lord. Not dimly, but clearly. Those who have lived this life and, and opposed him, I don't know if they see Jesus Christ the Lord, but I think they maybe have a more real sense being separated now eternally from him, who he is. It's sort of us here that need to pray every single day, often, often, at least this is what I do, and I encourage, Lord, show me more and more. Show me more and more who you are. I want to know you. I want to live like you. I want to know the power of the Holy Spirit in my life and in our lives. But there is a day coming when every knee will bow. Every knee in heaven. We've talked about that place. Every knee on earth. 
kind of familiar with that place, and every knee below the earth. This is kind of the ancient way that the, that the, that the, the, the places, the realms were divided, the heavens, the, the earth, and under the earth. So this, would, in terms of who is where, would be a little bit different depending on which religion you were looking at, uh, the ancient Greeks, and then carrying on into the Romans and some other ideas. But Paul was just picking up an idea and basically saying, everywhere. Everywhere. Every person who has ever lived, is living, and will live, will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Some will do it out of joy and gratitude. With tears flowing down our face, maybe because we see our Lord. So thankful for what he has done for us and seeing him and maybe knowing him much more clearly than we even do right now. Others will bow in opposition, maybe with some resistance, with continuing pride and rivalry. But everyone will bow. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that there is no other God but Jesus Christ. There is no other Lord but Jesus. And this will be to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> I want to say, say this and draw our attention here in terms of, of applying this. I think I've already given us a few things that we can do to apply this, but let me just say this. Look back at verse, uh, chapter, uh, verse 5 with me, two, chapter 2, verse 5. I, I prefer the way that the NAS translates this. The ESV says, have this mind among yourselves. That's, that's not bad. I like have this attitude or something like have this attitude among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here he's setting up Jesus as the example, and then we just walked through what Jesus did and, and how, how he is the example for us in humility. But it's this idea, have this mind, have this attitude among yourselves. That's one of the, that, that's, in our passage as we look at it, that's one of the most important and maybe the command for us to latch on to. Because that's this idea of set your mind on this. That's what Paul's getting at. Set your mind, Philippians. He's saying, set your mind, phroneo is the Greek word. So if you want to, would do one Greek word today, phroneo, if you want to remember that. Phroneo, set your mind on this. Have, this. have this same attitude. That is an act of our will, and that is a taking our thoughts under control recognizing when our thoughts want to go rivalry what that person pride i'm better than i'm glad i'm not that person nope 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 we we we, we get rid of those have this mind that was also in christ jesus This is a passage that's full of live like this live like this live like this your faith ought to show up like this but nowhere in here do we get very far from the work of Jesus Christ. And though he is an example of humility, he is God's grace to us. 
We're going to sing about that now. Worship team, come up. Let me pray for us as we transition into that. And then I'll sing with you. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that you have inspired. Holy Spirit, continue your good work. Work in us. You've started a work in us, and we know that you will complete it. Use what we have learned here, what we will commit to memory, what we will apply. It's not our strength, it's yours. So teach us more and more to live and walk by the power of the Holy Spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name I ask, amen.